Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to my show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV every week, two nights a week. And on this show, I'll be bringing you an insight into people who I think are some of the most interesting individuals on the planet, not just for their diverse viewpoints, but for their fascinating personal stories. And I am so excited about this evening's guest. Australians, and indeed the whole world, will remember with a shudder 2020 and 2021, when despotic state premiers ran riot with draconian, unscientific COVID restrictions, while a hamstrung, inept federal government watched on. Possibly the cruelest, most megalomaniacal of all the state premiers, in my opinion, was, of course, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, who presided over the world's longest lockdowns, a total of 262 days, and maintained some of the strictest COVID restrictions in the world when he wasn't holding citizens under house arrest. But it wasn't just the fact that Daniel Andrews held a state hostage on the basis of murky, never actually revealed health advice. It was the extra dollops of cruelty accompanying it that shocked the world. We all remember in 2020 when pregnant Melbourne woman Zoe Bueller, aged 28, was arrested in her pyjamas in front of her children because she posted on Facebook about a freedom protest. Now, you're under arrest in relation to incitement. Incitement? Yes, yeah, sir. Now, you're not obliged to say or do anything, but anything you say or do may be given in evidence. Excuse me, incitement for what? What the, What on earth? Excuse me, what What on earth? Yeah, just put your phone down. Can you, like, record this? I'm in my pyjamas. What's I this? I ultrasound in an hour. Yeah, pregnant. she's pregnant, so... Well, be... I'll take it easy. What's this about? If I have face... an ultrasound just let me in an hour. Let me finish and I'll explain. It's in relation to a Facebook post, in relation to a lockdown protest you put on for Saturday. Yeah, and I wasn't breaking any laws by doing that. You are, that. actually. You are breaking all. That's why I'm arresting you. In... Then, in 2021, we saw the infamous tradie protests sparked by members of the CFMEU protesting their union boss, over vaccine mandates, which spread quickly into a movement of people from all walks of life protesting the authoritarian COVID policies inflicted on them by a callous, dystopian state. Like many of you, I watched in horror as those peaceful, unarmed protesters were subjected to brutality by Victorian police, from being shot with rubber bullets to an incident where an elderly woman was slammed to the ground and pepper sprayed. But throughout the ordeal, there was one man who remained constant, an independent journalist with no vested interests who chronicled the tradie protests armed only with a video camera and his considerable wits. Now, much to the chagrin of the mainstream media, 
This independent journalist's live streams of the protests went viral, garnering millions of views worldwide, with tens of thousands of people watching at a time. And it was an absolute public service that he did so, given how maliciously the protesters were portrayed by the political and media class. Failed prime ministerial candidate Labour's Bill Shorten even went so far as to call them man-baby Nazis. But fortunately, the protesters had a friend on the ground who was able to tell the truth of it. I know these types of scenes can be misconstrued in the media. Uh, people have very different opinions of what should be allowed or allowed on this sacred ground. So they're saying, telling everyone to be respectful, that this memorial represents people that have died for freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, in case you haven't already guessed, that man, that lone beacon of integrity in the media during that time, is here with me now to discuss all of this and more. He is the one, the only, the incomparable Rukshan Fernando. Rukshan, it is wonderful to have you here this evening. How are you on this fine evening? Daisy, I'm doing great. Great to be on your show. And uh, yeah, just another another day here in Victoria. So, you know, I can complain about a lot of things, but otherwise <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, you most certainly can complain a lot of about a lot of things living in this, the Socialist Republic of Victoria. I, I, don't envy, I do not envy you at all. But look, speaking of Victoria... Rukshan, you did just the most magnificent job uh, chronicling the 2021 treaty protests, not just in documenting the activity, but also in cutting through that ridiculous mainstream media and political narrative that this was all just a big Nazi fringe thing. You know, you brought forth the truth of who the vast majority of those protesters were. They were ordinary working people who had been laid off from their jobs and were being forced to undergo a medical procedure they didn't want to undergo, they were stuck at home. You know, these were not, it was not a giant group of, of fascists as was portrayed. My husband and I, by the way, were glued to your live streams at the time. I'd send him a text going, Rukshan is streaming now, we have to <laughs> we have to get on and we both jump on wherever we were. You were just the most vital resource. Now, because of this, you shot to international superstardom, in you, including appearing on Fox News with Laura Ingram in the space of about a week. How did that feel is what I'd like to know. Yeah, look, that was definitely a, a very interesting time. Um, and the way that it all kind of transpired was, you know, like during the lockdowns and everyone's kind of stuck at home, some people were learning to cook and some people were learning arts and other crafts on online. <laughs> but I took my time that I had obviously been um, not, not able to work in my business. So I took that time to really pursue another passion of mine, which is uh, politics, uh, filmmaking, and also, 
uh, independent journalism. So I really used that time in that pursuit. It wasn't something that was planned, obviously. Uh, it's something that just happened very organically. And the next thing you know, like you said, I ended up on uh, Laura Ingram and all sorts of other um, places and also obviously many people around the country and particularly in Victoria uh, tuning into my live streams. Now, none of that was planned. It was all organic, but uh, it was just kind of the time that we were living in, right? There was just so much going on, um, which is crazy to think because we were all locked in our homes, but there was still so much happening out there if you wanted to actually go and um, report on that as someone um, who was capturing uh, you know, stories of the public. So uh, that's just how I ended up there. And like you said, the, the, the um, interpretation or the presentation of people by the mainstream media uh, which, which is that, which is what actually pushed me to continue to do my work because I would go to a protest, I would cover something that's happening, I would go home, watch the mainstream coverage of it, and like you said, they were calling these people Nazis. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> on the actual ground amongst these people, and I've grown up my whole life in the southeastern suburbs of uh, Victoria, very multicultural, very diverse uh, part of uh, Victoria. So. I'm seeing people there that are from all walks of life, all communities. You know, I ran into some people that I went to primary school with and these are people from, you know, different uh, parts of the world. So it was a very uh, diverse crowd. And for me to see the portrayal of these people as fascists, as right-wing, as Nazis uh, was very disheartening. So that actually gave me more resolve and strength to actually continue to do what I did because as you would have seen, as many other people would have seen, uh, it wasn't just a case of being able to freely go out in Australia as a journalist and cover something. There was a lot of pressure put on you uh, from law enforcement and police. I had a few visits from the police to my house to tell me to actually not go do my work. So it was a very interesting time and that kind of, you know, everything just happened organically and you end up on these places and things. And today I'm able to look back on that time and have these type of conversations and reflect on it. But at the time I was just in the moment, if that's <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm, it, it does make sense. And it, it's so interesting how, you know, the, the universe or, or higher forces or, or, or God or whatever you choose to believe in kind of buffets you in directions that maybe you don't expect to take. I mean, I, I, I don't think you expected it in 2021 to have, you know, tens of thousands of people internationally watching your live streams on the ground at these trading protests, but you, you just did the most wonderful job. And it's it's amazing how you, you mentioned the multicultural nature of the protests. I mean, I remember watching the live streams and, and seeing um, sheiks there as well. There were people from all walks of life. And, and I I thought to myself, oh, that's very odd. They're calling uh, sheiks and, and immigrants from, you know, Asia and from India and from other places um, Nazis. The, the narrative just didn't hold up, you know, and that was what was so fantastic um, that you were there. Um, what struck me was that you really showed the world the truth of what was going on in Australia. I mean, to the point where New Yorkers marched on the Australian consulate, like in the Big Apple. I mean, do you think the perception of Australians that a lot of foreigners have of us, which is the happy-go-lucky rebels, larrikins, was permanently changed by the willingness of just so many Australians to be locked down? Yeah, look, I definitely think so. Even not just international people, even people locally, myself included, my perception of Australians really changed during that time. Um, you know, this idea that we are people who are, you know, fair for a fair go, for instance, and we're locking up people. For, and you know, one one class of people can go to work; other people are shut off from their work. Right? We're having this uh, this this system in our country where it's not fair anymore. 
And they're giving all sorts of reasons for it. Um, but what we're seeing is, you know, the people that are putting these decisions in front of us, the, who are locking us down and doing these type of things, there's no accountability for them. There's no transparency for them. But people are still willing to go, go along with them. I'm not telling people to go out there and protest. I'm just saying the general curiosity of Australians to actually question, you know, how is it that these politicians, uh, week in, week out, they change their story and people are just like, oh, yeah, cool, you know, okay, you know, two more weeks, yep, you know, five more months. Like, how, how did that happen to our country? You know, we need to be curious about what our political leaders are doing and what our media is doing and what our institutions are doing. And we lost a lot of that. And I think for people watching from around the world, they did see Australians as this uh, group of people who just, <laughs> you know, just take it. And uh, they're happy to just, you know, go with the government and they're, they're, there's, no, there's no passion there for their rights. There's no passion there for their fellow workers. They're just happy to subjugate everyone uh, to whatever the government says. And I think um, you know, a lot of people saw that uh, in Australia for myself for the first time, that how willing we were to do that. And of course, internationally, people were seeing all the, all the crazy scenes, right? Like it's something you would see in some type of third world banana republic. Uh, a lot of the things that were happening, you know, police knocking on uh, pregnant people's homes and uh, for social media posts and things like this. It's just crazy. Like, you know, I don't, I didn't, I never expected to see that in that country. So if I'm living in Australia and I didn't expect that, people watching from other countries around the world looking into Australia, uh, you know, they would be shocked by this. And this is not just Westerners being shocked by this. I had cousins and stuff in Sri Lanka in my in my parents' country. Uh, they would tell me like, you know, what's going on there? Because <laughs> the, even there, some of the stuff is crazy, right? Like even there, uh, police wouldn't normally go f to a house for a protest or a social media post. Like there's other other repercussions, but the the, the way that it was happening here, they couldn't believe it. So there was definitely something that uh, wasn't quite right in Australia during that time. It was very strange, wasn't it? And. What I realised about Australians, and I don't know whether it's how we're taught at school or whether it's because we are such a welfare state, you know, say compared to the USA, which is, you know, is, a, is kind of a blessing and a curse. I think Australians have a very different and quite a, a toxic idea of what the role of government should be in people's lives. The rhetoric I sort of heard coming from Australians and from politicians was that rights originate with the state. So it's the government's job, it seems in the minds of a lot of Australians and certainly a lot of Australian politicians, it's the government's job to hand out and take away rights as they see fit. I mean, one thing that infuriated me in Queensland, one of the many things that infuriated me in Queensland at the time um, about uh, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk was that um, when they were talking about, you know, trying to in incentivize people to get vaccines, um, the rhetoric was, you will be rewarded with keeping your freedoms if you get this vaccine. And Rukshan, I saw red when I, when I had a look at that piece of propaganda because I thought it's not up to the government to reward citizens with freedom. Freedom is, is an inherent God-given right. So what do you think of that hypothesis? Do Australians just have totally a false idea of what the role of government should be in their lives? Yeah, look, I mean, just to kind of add to that, I think Australians are very uh, good people, are fair-minded people, and are, and are good community sports, right? Like for when this all went down, for myself as a business owner, I was very early on uh, happy to support the government. Uh, it's, it's unknown, you know, everyone's worried, people around me are worried, my parents are worried, like everyone, it's unknown at the, at the very start. And there is this community spirit that we have where we do get together 
where we do work as a community and where we you know are happy to kind of uh, forego some of these rights uh, if it benefits the community. I think there is an element of that in our in our culture in Australia in the West. There is an element of that. But having said that, uh, just because we're willing to do that in that moment, uh, when we start to see that being infringed to a point where it's no longer uh, just about you know everyone working together as a community, now it's become hey, if you don't do this thing, uh, whether it's vaccine passports or you know get get the jab, whatever it is, if you don't do this thing, you can't have a job. I think that's overstepping the mark, and like mm. you said, that blurs the line uh, between the the, the in rights of the individual and the role of the state. And what we saw during that time was this: uh, the state, the overarching institutions of the state, with the help of the media, and uh, you know these globalists, really, because a lot of these commands were coming down from what was happening internationally. Uh, we we can <laughs> argue about that all that we like, as it's a conspiracy theory <laughs> or not. But what we saw was hap- what we saw happening in Australia mirrored what was happening in the UK, what was happening in the US. We were kind of getting that same type of. Um, uh, the same t- set of commands, or maybe a week later on, right? So <laughs> yeah. when, when, when that started happening, and we started losing our rights and losing our voices, uh, losing the ability to gather as a community. Now, it's one thing for the government to say, "Well, you know, you, you, you're allowed to protest, but do it online." I mean, <laughs> that's like you, you, any if, if 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 some country somewhere else in the world said that, uh, we would say, "Oh, well, you know, they're being undemocratic." But all of a sudden now we have to accept all these information that they're giving us and we can no longer protest against the infringements against our rights. I mean, that's just a very basic example. But, you know, we started accepting that and people were cheering that on, uh, which is even stranger. Yeah. <laughs> people were cheering that on. And I always yeah. thought, like, if it's for this particular reason, like, I, then I, I started to understand why in other parts of the world how these dictators get away with things. Uh, they get the community on side. They create the enemy. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, the unvaccinated, the anti-lockdowners became the enemy. Like these are the people who are making the lockdowns go longer. You know, who are making uh, it uh, harder for you to go back to work. When the reality is today, especially when we look back with hindsight, the people that were making lockdowns go longer and all this kind of stuff happen were the people in government, were the people making decisions. Mm. Uh, a lot of the time making incorrect decisions, but they were happy to blame the population and turn people against each other, which in turn uh, infringed on everyone's rights. But like you said, everyone kind of accepted it at the time, which seems crazy now. And, you know, it's just really bad reflection, I think, on where we are as a society. Because mm. when the next thing comes around, I have no faith that it won't be the same thing that will happen again, you know? Yeah, and that, that's what terrifies me because, well, you know what, I reckon, just in my opinion, the uh, climate change lockdowns are just around the corner, Rukshan. Um, I, I think we can, we can all possibly hypothesise that. I am always just a little bit edgy that, well, you know, they've done it once, they've seen we'll all accept it. When is the next time they're going to do it again? Um, and it's interesting you mentioned, you know, people, um, how if we, you know, looked around the world and saw a country saying, oh, well, you can protest, but just do it online, we'd say it was a dictatorship. I think it was Ron DeSantis who uh, brought up Australia in a speech at the time when all of this was going on and said effectively that America should just stop trading with Australia or just stop having a relationship with them because what we were doing to our own citizens was so horrible and so dictatorial. He said, you know, America is a, 
a country that believes in freedom and rights and what they're doing to Australians is a total infringement of that. Why are we having anything to do with Australia? And I thought, right on, Ron DeSantis, that is, that is exactly right. And I was, I was really pleased that he said it. And look, Speaking of, you know, values like like freedom, for instance, you, you clearly have um, a, a real set of values. You know, you, you understand the fundamental nature of individual rights, how they're inherent rather than given by the government. Uh, you value freedom of choice, obviously, uh, freedom of speech. You have a really um, incredible sense of a love of country and, and patriotism, which is more developed than I think most Australians that I know. Um, I'm interested in where those values came from. I, I mean, you've said yourself um, in the past, I believe, in the Sydney Morning Herald that say the left, for instance, looks at you and thinks, well, he's, you know, a, you know, the son of Sri Lankan immigrants, he should have different opinions to what he has. And I read that your, your parents, I think, are lifelong Labour voters. So I, where did these values come from? Have you always felt this way or what have life experiences shaped them? What do you think? I think it's been shaped by life experiences. Uh, I've always been a little bit, a little bit more outspoken and vocal, um, and you know, not afraid to speak my mind. Uh, but it wasn't really until I started, you know, inadvertently again, uh, got this kind of attention during that time where people saw my views that I actually learned. Like, actually, one of the most dangerous things for people like me is to have my own view. Uh, <laughs> because all of a sudden, it's like, why is he having that view? He doesn't fit into that mold. And I don't want to bring race and you know those kind of things into it. But like you said, there is an expectation of people like me in society in countries like Australia that we set we fit into a certain box, that we play a certain role. And I never saw myself like that. Um, I think I was very lucky in the time that I grew up in the 90s, the upbringing that I had. Uh, we weren't infiltrated with these ideas of hating this country. Um, you know, I was very passionately, I, I love this country and the opportunities that this country uh, gives me. You know, I see my family overseas, um, my relatives and so on, and they are not always in the best of conditions. Like people overseas, like if, if you look into it, they're always looking, out, looking for ways to get out of their countries and move to somewhere like Australia. And here I am in Australia and I am so lucky and I have all these opportunities and I'm able to do these things and pursue uh, my interests. So a lot of that I don't take for granted and I'm very proud of the fact that I have um, this Australian part of my life now and, you know, in the future, my children and so on will be a part of this country as well. So I, I want to defend that. I want to ensure that the way that I grew up, that they have a sense of that as well. Uh, because one of the disturbing things I've seen, Daisy, is that, you know, I grew up here and I didn't have these impediments. My parents never told me that this is a racist country and these people hate you. And, you know, no one was telling me that on the media, right? But kids that are born to you know, people my age that I grew up with, their children are now taught at school that they're living in a country that doesn't provide them opportunities, a country that hates them, a country that you should hate because of the flag and the history and all these kind of things. But I didn't grow up like that. So <laughs> we didn't have these things, right? So it's just crazy how just this indoctrination that we're seeing is making people hate this country. And I'm just going to say it flat out, they're making people hate this country mm. when the opposite is true. Uh, this country is a wonderful country. It's a country that provides so many opportunities for people from all around the world to come here and pursue things that they love uh, in peace. Uh, we are very fortunate and very lucky. And during that time in the lockdowns, that really made me understand why Australia is actually a great country, despite all the negative things that we saw. 
the freedom that uh, we had, uh, I was able to exercise as a journalist in the, you know, in, in Sri Lanka, possibly during that time, if I try to do what I did, uh, as bad as it got here in Australia, I probably would have ended up in a jail. So, wow. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you, know, you know what I mean? Like some some people, they they were they did face these kind of situations, but relatively in Australia, we're still okay when it comes to these things. So I want to ensure that we defend it so we never go down that path where the countries that many migrants left behind uh, doesn't just become a clone, you know, Australia doesn't just become another version of that. So I think there's something here to defend and that's why I'm so passionate about Australia. That is the most wonderful attitude to have. Um, it, it's so fortunate. I mean, you and I, I think we're about the same age. Um, we had a, a, you know, similar era of upbringing and I, I too, I wasn't really taught to hate this country either in high school. And it, it, it's so different now what kids are being taught. But as you say, I mean, I can't speak from personal experience, obviously, but Australia is a, is a very, very tolerant, lovely, multicultural country. I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day. She's from, she's from Papua New Guinea. And she was telling me how unusual racism is in Australia, in her experience. And she said she's, she since high school, she might've experienced it twice when someone yelled something nasty at her out of a car window and she said the reason she found it was so jarring was because it was so unexpected she said I we just I just don't get it here and it was it was so heartening to hear that actually you know that, that she's someone who could have had those experiences was saying no Australia is is such a a tolerant country and racism is so unusual and it frustrates me as I'm sure it frustrates you that young people nowadays are just taught that the opposite is is true it, it, it absolutely does my head in. Um, now look, what I found really interesting, speaking of the protests, uh, was the way that the mainstream media treated you uh, during your coverage of the protests. I will put it bluntly, they hated you. <laughs> they absolutely hated you because they were pea green with envy, was my interpretation of the work that you were doing and also the audience that you were getting, which was much, much bigger than theirs. I'd go through and sort of compare live streams, like, I don't know, Channel 9 would do a live stream and I'd see the views. Then I'd check your Facebook page and it'd be like 10 times the amount of views. It must have been absolutely driving them mad. They were so condescending of you. I mean, they'd call you an independent journalist, like in, always in inverted commas like that, like, oh, that's not a real thing. You have to be part of a masthead to be taken seriously, was the attitude. Um, they really disparagingly referred to your wedding videography business, which I just thought was, was so uncouth and so just lowbrow. And it was the worst case of sour grapes. Legacy media really does not like independent journalists and commentators, do they? No, especially in today's world, they hate it. Mm. Um, we are their number one enemy. And look, I mean, I don't blame them because, you know, a lot of the times I, I make comments about this all the time. I'm working out of my kitchen and <laughs> I'm going out there and doing these things on my laptop, sometimes sitting there in my boxer shorts and I'm able to be more effective than they are mm. uh, for the simple fact that I'm actually doing the work. This is the thing. It's not. It's not an inability of the mainstream media during that time to actually do these stories. They selectively chose not to do these type of stories. They chose to ignore the population. They chose to just, uh, you know, give into the advertising dollars, go with the government narrative, not question a lot of the things that were being said and done. They chose all of this. And uh, you know, independent creators during that time, myself and many others, I was just one um, around the world. 
uh, we decided to actually go do what traditionally what journalists would do, which is just put a camera or a microphone out there and hear stories from on the ground. And the most interesting stories during that time, forgetting about the daily press conferences we had from you know government officials, the most interesting stories during that time was, of course, the people. Mm. The people who were being impacted by this. And not just people who were sick or anything like this, but the people who were impacted, locked, locked at home, didn't have jobs. I mean, this was a very uh, you know interesting time in the history of the world. Like We had not really gone through something like this in the modern era. So for the media to actually drop the ball and not do these stories... Uh, made it really simple for someone like myself to go out there and do it. Because what am I doing? I'm going out there, I'm pointing a camera and I'm live streaming. It is not rocket science. Uh, so in in a way, it's sad. It's a sad indictment on the modern mainstream media and where their priorities are um, because they didn't do the most simplest of things. Um, but in another way, it shows you the power of the modern modern world, right? Uh, the the power of the independent media, the power of creators, the power of you know, for lack of a better word, I know people don't like this word, but influencers mm. in in some instances <laughs> uh, to, to, <laughs> to go out there and do this work. Because I tell you what, Daisy, uh, usually when we watch these kind of mobile phone live streams, it's coming from like Iran or something of women women protesting, right? It's this mobile phone footage that we're getting of a live stream because the state media won't cover what's happening in that country. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, the roles are reversed. In the West now, the state media, you know, uh, the corporate media, whatever you want to call it, legacy media, they're not covering the stories. It's the people going out there with their mobile phones and filming stuff. And that is what we're getting as a news. And the public, even in this country, in Australia, started tuning into those things because, you know what, the public's not stupid. Uh, yeah. They can tell, they can smell the BS and they knew that what what they were seeing from these live streams was authentic, even though it maybe wasn't as polished as the nightly news, it was authentic. And that's what people at home were feeling and that's what they tuned into because that resonated with them. Whereas the BS that they were getting from the mainstream media, they knew they were being spoon-fed, they knew they were being fooled many of the times and they chose to ignore it. And, you know, that it's just it's just basic stuff, right? <laughs> people yeah. watch and engage yeah. in what they want to and what they believe in. And, and I think that's what happened during that time. I, I think so. I, I think, yes, I mean, it's, fear is a very powerful weapon and I think a lot of people were really just terrified into doing what they were told by, by the government. And as you rightly identified, Australians are very well-meaning and we do have a sense of community. Um, and the mainstream media, um, it wasn't even just a matter, I, I think, of them not doing the work. They were deliberately amplifying an alternative and very false narrative, which was the narrative that the government was putting out, which is that, you know, anti-vaxxers, anti, first of all, even using that term to describe people who were simply vaccine hesitant, you know, people who thought, oh, look, I like vaccines, but this is kind of a new one. I might just want to wait maybe a year or so. Then, yeah, I'd be happy to get it if nothing happens. That kind of person was called an extremist, an anti-vaxxer, accused of wanting to kill granny, accused of wanting to kill children, accused of being a Nazi. Um, and I remember um, Bill Shorten was on television um, calling, I had this clip in my, in my editorial, uh, calling the protesters man-baby Nazis. And none of those journalists challenged him on it. None of them said, hey, where's your, where is your evidence for these allegations you're making that this is a fringe far-right group that's um, or, you know, pushing forward this stuff. Can you believe that none of them challenged Bill Shorten on that? Yeah, and it, and it was really easy stuff to challenge, yeah. right? It was so easy to challenge. And look, I'm not saying that there was no unsavory characters at these protests. There always is. There's mm. always opportunists. 
that come and try to like you know hijack things, and this happens, right? But the vast majority of people uh, was not that, and it was very obvious. So the fact that the media didn't challenge people like Bill Shorten and other politicians making these claims, I showed you they were just almost like you know what is it, the mockingbird media? Like they're just going along. Uh, with whatever was uh, you know suitable for their particular narrative of creating fear, mm. uh, which is what they were doing, right? creating fear. And I think they were targeting uh, people who were in the middle, uh, who were on the edge of either uh, you know siding with government on certain things or you know being pushed over the edge of because of what was happening. They were happy to keep those people as much as they could under control by keeping them scared yeah. and showing that the people outside protesting, they're not like you. They, these people are, you know, dangerous people. They're not you. You're good. You're a good person. You're at home listening to the government. Stay at home. Those people out there, they're Nazis. Don't go out there. I think they were doing something like this, which obviously now with a lot of hindsight, many other people might have switched on to. But at the time in the environment that we were in, a lot of people were rightly, you know, uh, fear, fearful and, and conned by that, unfortunately. Mm, it is. I, I always say fear is the most powerful weapon that any leader or any governmental body has at their disposal in order to control human behaviour. And we have seen the results of that time and time again for millennia. You know, as they say, human knowledge in increases and changes. Human nature simply doesn't. It simply doesn't, I don't think. Um, now, look, I can't talk to you without talking about the latest uh, Victorian Premier Chairman Dan, Daniel Andrews, skullduggery. Now, you honestly could have knocked me over with a feather yesterday morning when I saw that Daniel Andrews is finally decreasing in popularity in Victoria. There was a Resolve poll which revealed his support as preferred Premier has dropped from 49% to 44% over the past two months, which is his lowest score in two years. He has also dropped on the personal likability scale, a feat which I just did not think was possible because <laughs> Victorians just are so enamoured with Daniel Andrews, with a net favourability rating of minus seven, which is the first time, according to Resolve director Jim Reed that Andrews had dropped into net negative territory. Rukshan, do you think that Victorians are finally starting to wake up to Daniel Andrews? I'd like to believe they are, but <laughs> I'm very hesitant, to, very hesitant to go all in because I've always uh, had my, uh, you know, Suspicions that no matter what this guy does, there is something there. They call him Teflon Dan for a reason. He always <laughs> appears, appears to bounce back, and you know he corrals the media, he controls the the press back here, and somehow he's able to you know get that shine back onto him, even though he loses it. I know currently, you know what's the latest thing? Dead 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 Labor members. Um, Forging, uh, forging signatures, yeah, yeah. Forging, forging <laughs> I mean, you can add a whole list of things to this. Like it just the next craziest thing adds on to it, and it's just like he keeps going on. So, I hope, I hope Victorians, my fellow Victorians, I hope you are seeing uh, the man for who he is. Um, mm. And look, this is someone I, I believe. You know, sadly in Victoria, uh, as bad as he is, uh, he does play the political game really well. Yeah. He and really he has does. done that for a very long time, right? He's done that for a very long time, decades now. And he is a master of it. And to see that bit of that shine coming off, yeah, it, it shows you that that's how bad things have gotten here, right? Mm. To have that shine coming off 
that's how bad it's gotten. But it's too late, I reckon. It's too late for a lot of lot of Victorians. A lot of the decisions that he's made uh, are going to have lasting impacts on our on our state. So whether he's in or out, I think it's not really a matter anymore. It doesn't really matter. Last election, we had an opportunity there to really uh, make a difference and really show our dissatisfaction with him. But that is not what happened. And at the end of the day, I think Victorians are getting what they deserve. And I hate to be someone that you know tells people, you know, this is what you deserve, deal with it. But unfortunately, um, I think we need some of that medicine to actually maybe not make these same type of decisions with future leaders um, <laughs> to continue to give them a pass, regardless of all the crazy things and sometimes you know things bordering on uh, unlawful or illegal just allegedly, uh, that they do, we shouldn't give them a pass. So this is what happens. This is the ultimate result is Daniel Andrews. Yeah, and I, I reckon I've always thought that a massive part of the problem with Victorians being so enamoured with Daniel Andrews, no, no matter what he does, as, as you say, like Teflon Dan is, is the best description I think I've ever heard, um, the Victorian Liberal Party is just so wet. They are so in ineffective. They are hardly any better than Daniel Andrews. I mean, if you had to pick like a lesser of two evils between Daniel Andrews and John Pesuto, you'd actually kind of struggle, you know, like, uh, you know, I, 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 it would be very hard to pick. Um, they are not an effective opposition and they are not a viable option for state government. They are unelectable currently in their current form and have proved that a number of times. And of course, one of the things that infuriated so many of us was the treatment of Liberal MP Moira Deeming, who was hounded and then expelled from the party room for speaking at a protest for women's sex-based rights, which was organised by UK women's rights activist Kelly J. Keane. Um, it's hard for Victorians to see past Daniel Andrews when they have someone as useless as, and unappealing, in my opinion, as John Pesuto on the other side. I, I mean, if he's literally siding with biological males over women on the subject of women's sex-based rights at a time when the Liberal Party supposedly has a problem with women, I mean... That is a real indicator of someone who has no idea what they're doing, isn't it? Yeah, look, I mean, I'd love to echo what you said there about the uh, opposition uh, not really being an opposition here in Victoria. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, right? You'd think that there'd be such a, a fledgling opposition here with all the stuff that's going on, but they're so weak. Uh, they don't stand for anything. I don't know what they stand for. Um, and this is coming from someone who traditionally would have voted uh, liberal in the past. I look at these people and I think, wow, what a shame that this is this is all we have, um, you know. And with with Don Pesuto himself as the leader, the guy's all over the place. I think the other day I saw a video of him with a soccer ball at uh, Parliament House here in Spring Street, you know, saying "Go Matildas" and oh. you know, women's sport and all this kind of stuff. But it does, doesn't ring true, right? This is a guy that can't defend his own female member uh, in the Parliament House who's advocating on behalf of women's rights. And I was at that protest and I covered that protest. And all Moira Deeming did that day was go up on, on the microphone and read a letter from her a Muslim friend about her, her life in Australia oh, wow. with uh, you know these changes which are happening in the country. That's all she did. She didn't say anything else. She just read a letter from her Muslim friend about what it's like to be a woman in Australia. And, you know, because of all the attention and whatever Daniel Andrews said and whatever the media said, 
this guy just folded and, you know, uh, left his member hang, hang, hanging to dry. And that was really for me as well with the opposition, John Pacito, for me as well, like the kind of last step of even giving these people a look in. Mm. Um, I, I look at this as having no opposition. Uh, it is really up to people to highlight the inefficiencies of the current government. Uh, what generally happens with uh, the pseudo liberal government is, you know, they'll 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 touch on like these big issues, like you know, we lost the Commonwealth Games and things like this, and they're easy. They're easy things to to fight on. You know, you can say, oh well, Daniel Andrews lost us the Commonwealth Games, blah blah blah. But to actually passionately fight for what you believe in, to fight for women's rights, to fight for your members, to get up there and you know do those things where you do get pushback, right? It's not easy. Like even for myself, I'm I'm in the I'm I'm a, I'm a business person. I'm in the wedding industry. Mm. There are consequences when I go out there and and advocate for things that I believe in. But because I believe in them, uh, I truly believe in those values. I do it regardless of the consequences. But when you have people in politics in the opposition who can no longer go out there and advocate on their principles, the basic principles of the Liberal Party, you know, their we believe statement, that people, when they can't do that, then it, why are you in politics? What are you there for? Just like for your cushy job and your salary as opposition leader. You know, these people stand for nothing. And mm. we're lucky, at least in Victoria, in our Senate, in the, in the upper house, we do have some independent uh, politicians or, you know, p- politicians from minor parties who are advocating and, uh, you know, standing up to these things. And we're also very fortunate that even in the Liberal Party, we do have people like Maura Deeming, who's mm. a very strong woman, uh, despite the challenges that she faces from her own party. Forget about what other people say about her. Despite the challenges that she faces from her own party, she is strong in her conviction and what she believes in. And for me to even hold on a glimmer of hope for the Liberal Party, it's because I see people like Maura Deeming and what they stand for. And you know that out there amongst that party, there are people like her that believe and are steadfast in in their principles. And I think it's just a matter of activating those type of people in the opposition. And I think it takes, honestly, just strong leadership because John Pesuto is not going to activate anyone like that. He's just coasting by, who knows if he'll make the next election. And even if he gets there, Dan or whoever it is will will smash him at the election yeah. because guy doesn't stand, guy doesn't stand for a thing. I frankly think he's a coward, and I don't normally talk about politicians like that, but I think this guy is actually a coward. Well, what he did with more more redeeming was unbelievably cowardly, and and not just cowardly. It shows like in my opinion, just a real vanity, I think. And it's interesting you you touch on the the idea of, well, why are you even in politics? Are you just there for the cushy salary as opposition leader? My theory about this, I think it's ideological. My theory about right of centre politicians, or at least people who pertain to be right of centre, there's less urgency in the right-wing ideology than in the left. The left is all sort of death, doom and gloom, whereas conservatives and, you know, classical liberals are a bit more chilled out. My theory with right-wing parties that continue to lose again and again and again and also don't seem to want to win is that they actually don't want to win. It's like they've got so good at losing, they've forgotten how to win, and they can't be bothered to do so because if you're in opposition, well, you get to collect the cushy salary, you get the fame, you know, you get the affirmation if you have any fans, but you have absolutely none of the responsibility. Could that be um, a, a, a symptomatic in the Liberal Party in Victoria? I think it's, it's, it's a part of the Liberal Party federally in other yep. states as well. <laughs> uh, with, 
we're seeing this issue, right, with with people in the Liberal Party not uh, willing to advocate on their principles and actually stand up for the very basic things. Like you said, it's it's easy for them uh, just to just to be in the opposition and not have that responsibility. Um, now, of course, federally, the Liberal Party were there in power for a long time, but towards the election time, you saw them really not stick to the things they believe in, mm. and they were going more towards what the Labor Party was saying or what the left was saying. And I think doesn't doesn't always resonate. Uh, they're trying to play this middle line, in my opinion, and appeal to people that will probably never vote for them. Yeah. And in the process, they're losing people that do actually vote for them who are looking at these minor parties and, and so on that are more, you know, in line with what their values are. And I, I don't know, long-term strategy, I, I, don't, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a good thing, but they're doing it and they must be doing some sort of research which tells them that it works or otherwise they're pretty <laughs> stupid for what they do. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's just baffling to watch. And it's been happening really from my memory since Malcolm Turnbull. Like the, the tendency of liberal moderates to try to cater to people who are literally never ever, ever in a million trillion years going to vote for them is just is just sad. It's like sort of the nerdy kid chasing after the popular group, like really wanting to be in but always getting, you know, screamed at or, or, or you know, thrown away or, or punched in the face. You, don't, you never know. But it, it has that dynamic and I find it unbelievably depressing, you know, and it leaves a lot of people feeling very politically homeless. Um, now... I want to talk about some of your recent coverage because you are always working and covering interesting things. And I had a look at your Twitter account the other day. Um, you've been covering the Stop the Towers protests, which is taking place in Melbourne, in which farmers have rolled up in their tractors and their trucks to protest renewable energy transmission lines being placed through farmland. Um, we've got some of your footage here. Let's have a quick look at it. Amazing stuff. I love seeing all those those tractors come. I'm such a city girl. So seeing all those tractors coming through, I find really, really cool. Like great work, great footage. Um, now, these are just some of the ordinary working people who are really going to suffer thanks to the implementation of these kinds of ridiculous net zero policies, aren't they? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very new to this issue and I'm learning about it as I go from attending these type of um, rallies and talking to the people there, which is a, a great way to learn because you're actually hearing firsthand from the people impacted by this. And a lot of these people are, you know, multi-generational Australian farmers are facing, you know, something that they would have never thought potentially that they would face, this kind of uh, policy-driven uh, change to something they've been doing for centuries sometimes, right? Mm. So it is impacting them uh, and they are coming out to the city. I don't think we've ever had that many tractors, someone could correct me if I'm wrong, in the city like that. It's a big effort <laughs> to get those tractors from all the way from regional Victoria into the city. I think there's about 45 tractors. So they're putting a lot of uh, effort into getting their voices heard because uh, they feel like they're not being heard in the in the, out there in the regions and they feel like this is actually going to impact 
a lot of things. There's a lot of issues. One of them is to do with uh, how you know obviously the power lines are going to be running through their properties and the issues with you know the renewable push that's happening in in those parts of the country. The other issue is of course you know just the impact on the land itself, environmental issues that they're worried about as well. These are people who are advocating for the environment, and a lot of the things that I heard from the farmers was where are the greens on this issue? Where mm. are the traditional you know environmentalists? And these farmers are saying we're ready to chain ourselves to our tractors. <laughs> And you know, to trees and stuff to protect our property, and they're ready to do that. And they're doing it for the environment, they're doing that for their livelihoods, and also the fact that this is, uh, you know, for the future generations who, you know, their children might be farming on that land, they want to preserve that. And the fact that us people in the city, I'm included in that. We have a very small understanding of what it actually takes to uh, get these kind of pr- produce uh, created in our country. The effort that these people go to day in, day out. We just see the uh, end end result of it when we go to our woolies to you know get our get our vegetables or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there is actually a whole community behind this uh, that are doing this, and the impact on from these kind of um, these programs for renewables and net zero and all this kind of stuff. Is now impacting you know that side of our our world, the, the farmers, and, and I think it's a good thing that they're now rising up and coming out and doing this because it's different when we do it. It's different when we say those things, but when the people actually impacted by it come out the city and tell the politicians, I think it, it does definitely make people take attention. I think so too, and certainly those those tractors caught my attention. I thought, oh wow, that that. That's a bit. Again, like the massive effort to get them out um, is quite incredible, and I think it's wonderful they're rising up because, as you say, these are the things that people just they just don't consider. It wouldn't even occur to a lot of people. Now, Rukshan, um, just before we go, of course, the big issue floating around is the Indigenous voice to Parliament. I have to get your take on this. We've seen the polls trending in what I think and what I think you think is in the right direction, which is towards the no camp. The no camp seems to be doing well, but complacency is the enemy of the good, isn't it? No, definitely. I think it's something that what we're seeing now as it kind of gets close to the voting date, uh, a lot of the people involved in the yes camp and a lot of, again, institutions that are involved in pushing the yes vote, a lot of these corporations that are involved, there's a lot of weight behind it. Um, and these lone voices, even the uh, opposition party commentators, uh, it's going to take a massive effort to kind of overcome that uh, despite the polls. But I think it's important. I think these conversations are important. I wasn't someone that was going to go out there and you know advocate for people to vote no. Mm. Uh, that was something that I didn't necessarily want to do. I wanted to kind of you know tell people this is how I'm going to vote and it's up to you to decide. But from seeing the way that this uh, referendum is, is being conducted, uh, from seeing how divisive it is, uh, it's taken you know even for myself to step up and say, "Hey, I think people should consider voting no for this reason." I'm not afraid to say that anymore, and I mm-hmm. and I have a lot of views on this. A lot of it centers around the fact that you know while recognition of Indigenous people in the constitution, I wholeheartedly agree with, and I think many Australians could get behind that. Um, 100%. The fact that we are then uh, creating this separate advisory body. Uh, this division between, you know, special, I know they say it's not like a special rights and privileges <laughs> for a certain group of people, but it is. If you read it and you understand what is being said there, it is. Yeah. As a Australian of Sri Lankan heritage, I don't have a special uh, body in that, you know, in the constitution. I'm an Australian. Yeah. Uh, Daisy, you're, you're an Australian. Everyone is the same. And I've always viewed Indigenous Australians in this country as one of my own, as an Australian. We are all the same. And, you know, whether it's Kathy Freeman running for us in the Olympics, 
yeah, you get proud of, proud about those moments, right? Because we're all Australian, and I want to yeah. preserve that, but also respect the indigenous history of this country as well. And I, I get that. I come from a country uh, which has a colonial history, which had these kind of same issues with with the British. But on top of that, we also have an indigenous population as well. So many people don't understand that in countries like Sri Lanka and India, there are indigenous Sri Lankans wow. who share very similar. Yeah, very, they share very similar links to the indigenous people in Australia. I'm guessing through the same migration route mm. all those hundreds, of, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. So we, I've seen all these problems, but I think the best way to deal with all of this is as a unified country because mm. that's what makes Australia special. The fact that we are unified, the fact that we don't have these ethnic differences uh, enshrined in our documents where one person is less or one person is more. Mm. I think we need to try to preserve those because that is the beauty of Australia. And I think if Indigenous people cannot take benefit of that, then there's a bigger issue at hand because there's no reason why you know, a, a refugee from Afghanistan can come to Australia and take hold of all these opportunities, come from nothing, and at the same time, an Indigenous child doesn't get those same opportunities yeah. despite having certain uh, advantages put their way as well. There's something going on that an advisory mm -hmm. body cannot fix. Um, and I think it's a it's a this this whole idea of these people being told uh, every you know couple of years when these things come around that they are a victim of something, mm. and they will always be oppressed if we continue to oppress them in this manner by putting that oppression into our founding document by saying that you will always be different to this person because you are you are special because you need special uh, you know uh, advice to fix your issues because these people don't need that. You know, I think that's yeah. that's a bad way of looking at as, as us, as humans. I, I don't think that's going to work in the future. Rukshan, beautifully put. I agree with you wholeheartedly. You are magnificent. You do incredible work. I wish you all the best. And I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Daisy. Lovely to be here. Well, that's all we have time for this evening. What a privilege it has been to host the great Rukshan Fernando. He is doing absolutely wonderful work. Good night, world. I'll see you next time. <laughs>